Welcome to the Quadcast, brought to you by the Mary Christie Foundation, a thought leadership organization dedicated to the behavioral health and well-being of teens and young adults. We have a particular focus on college students. I'm Marjorie Malpedi, the executive director of the Mary Christie Foundation and the host of the Quadcast. Hello, and welcome to the Quadcast. I'm Dana Humphrey, associate director of the Mary Christie Foundation, filling in for Marjorie Malpedi. Today, we'll be talking through some new research findings on faculty's role in student mental health and well-being. Our guests are two experts in student mental health. Dr. Sarah Lipson is an assistant professor in the Department of Health Law, Policy, and Management at the Boston University School of Public Health and co-principal investigator of the National Healthy Mind Study. Sarah is also the principal investigator of the study that we'll be discussing today. And Dr. Zoe Raguzios is the executive director of Counseling and Wellness Services at New York University and is also the president of the Mary Christie Foundation, soon to be the Mary Christie Institute. Sarah and Zoe, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Yes, thanks for having us. So this is actually not the first time we've had both of you on the quadcast together. In October, we had a conversation about the importance of expanding communities of support for college students and the role that faculty can play. And I encourage listeners to go back and listen to that episode if you haven't already. It's episode seven on our website or on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. But today we have new data to bring to that conversation and we thought it warranted an update. So this was a collaborative research project between MCF, the Healthy Minds Network, and the BU School of Public Health with funding from the Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation. And the focus was on faculty's beliefs and perceptions and behaviors regarding student mental health. So Sarah, I'm wondering, could you give us an overview of the survey and walk us through some of the key findings? Yeah, absolutely. I'm so happy to be back and have a chance to to talk about these data, which are definitely hot off the press. So we had decided a little over a year ago that we were going to pilot a study, a survey study of college and university faculty members around the topics that you just described, Dana. And so that was pre-pandemic when we were really thinking about the importance of this topic. And I think that the past year has really underscored how important this topic is. And I'm just thrilled that we are able to contribute some new data to be able to advance this conversation since we know that faculty play a really key role in student mental health. So we conducted this pilot study in the spring 2021 semester, so very recently, and we got data from about 1,700 faculty members at 12 colleges and universities across the U.S. And those colleges and universities are located in 11 states. And the survey was an online survey. We had four key sections to the survey. The first was a basic participant characteristics section where faculty members reported their gender identity, their faculty rank, academic discipline, that type of thing. The second section was about faculty members' attitudes and knowledge related to student behavioral health. The third section was about faculty members' actual experiences supporting students around mental health. And then the final section had a small number of items around faculty members' own well-being. 
I'm going to share a couple of key statistics that we have been thinking about as we've been diving into the data. So the first is almost 90% of faculty members report that they think student mental health has somewhat or significantly worsened since the pandemic began. And 43% of that are faculty who say they think student mental health has significantly worsened during the pandemic. We asked faculty about their knowledge and self-efficacy in terms of supporting students, and only about half of faculty members agreed or strongly agreed that they know how to recognize if a student is in emotional or mental distress. That percentage was higher, so a bit of higher self-efficacy among faculty members who identified as female or trans or gender nonconforming and lower levels among male faculty members. Close to 80% of faculty say that they have had one-on-one conversations with students about their mental health in the past year. So 79% say they've had one-on-one phone, video, or email conversations with students regarding student mental health and wellness. And that percentage is highest for faculty members in the social sciences, in public policy, education, humanities, and the arts, and lowest in faculty members in business, law, science, and math. And having these conversations is also higher among female and trans faculty and lower among male faculty. I don't want to bombard us with too much data to have swimming in our minds, but just two more quick statistics. So more than one in five faculty members agreed or strongly agreed that supporting student mental health has taken a toll on their own mental health. And again, higher among female and trans and a bit lower among male faculty. And less than a third of faculty members say that they've participated in a gatekeeper training program or a program that's designed to support them in having the skills and knowledge around student mental health. So those are some of the high-level findings that I wanted to highlight, and I have a few more statistics that I can kind of bring into the conversation as we continue, but I wanted to start with those. Yeah, no, thank you for that. And it sounds like from those findings that faculty are having a lot of these conversations, whether or not they're receiving training. Correct. Yep, that is absolutely what our data are showing. Was there anything in there that really surprised you? Yeah, so I think there's sort of been this long-held belief that faculty members don't see student mental health as kind of a part of their role or responsibility. And these data actually kind of push back against that in, in a really important way. So the survey showed that faculty members are frequently dealing with students in terms of their uh, mental health They report having very little training, as we said, but they also report a strong desire to strengthen their role supporting students. And and they also report that they want training. And we know a little bit about kind of their preferences for training. So 69% of faculty surveyed said they strongly agree or agree that they would welcome additional professional development on the topic of student mental health. So more than two thirds of faculty saying that they want more training and more professional development around this topic. A similar percentage, a little over two thirds, said that they're motivated to strengthen their role supporting student mental health. And something that I know we've talked a little bit about Dana as being a really key statistic is that 58% of faculty say that these types of trainings should be mandatory, that all faculty should receive basic training in how to respond to students in emotional or mental distress. So that's super encouraging data, kind of going against the grain of that misconception that faculty don't want to be involved or they don't feel like it's within their job 
purview. So that's a very exciting finding. I absolutely agree. Yeah. So Zoe, in your experience at NYU, did these results resonate with what you're seeing and hearing on campus? Yes, it really in so many different ways. Even if we look at the last 12 months, many faculty have reported students experiencing struggles because, frankly, there's so many reasons to be struggling right now. Students are isolated and lonely. Many are depressed and anxious. Lots of trauma related to the death of loved ones, related to racial injustice and violence, food insecurity, financial insecurity. So many reasons that students are choosing their faculty to talk to about these subjects. Another consideration is that as important as the faculty role has historically been, it's even more important right now because many students' contact with their colleges and universities have narrowed with many studying remotely. So with fewer students living on campus, it's resulting in their classes and their contact with their faculty being one of their only connections with their academic institutions. And so many students are choosing their professors to talk about their mental health with. Sometimes that's in the context of asking for an academic accommodation, but sometimes that's just because their faculty member is the person they can confide in. And, you know, as the data suggests, faculty are doing the right thing. They're asking for our intervention very appropriately. I've seen many faculty communications with individual students, and it's supportive and it's kind and it prioritizes their health and safety and it's appreciative of the student as a whole person. And it's really great to see that. So what is the role of the Counseling Center in filling some of these gaps that faculty are saying they have in their knowledge or training or even in educating faculty? Well, I think I'm going to answer that question related to the whole campus and not just what a counseling service can do, because I think we all know that counseling centers can't do very much without the support of their campus partners. The first thing I would say is offer training. You know, counseling services can do that, but so can health promotion offices, student success professionals. All of these people have the skills to train faculty in detecting and responding to students in distress. One thing that a university can do is to make sure that that training is available and can be disseminated widely. If possible, use technology to allow for more community members to be able to see it. I'm thrilled with the finding that 58% want the training to be mandatory, but having that training available and making it easy for people to access it is really one of the most important things that a university can do. Other things include, like, how can we incentivize the faculty to go that extra mile with students? Educating them is certainly one way, but really exploring other ways for faculty to have carved out time to be involved with their students on this level. And how can we give them that time, that credit? How can we relieve them of other responsibilities, allowing them a little space um, to be able to look at this task not as something additional they have to do beyond their work scope, but how can we start having a conversation with faculty about including that within you know, their, their work scope? And it sounds like from the data that they are more than welcoming of this kind of conversation. And the other thing I'll say is, again, make it easy, not only to access the training, but universities should make it as easy as possible for faculty and, you know, frankly, all community members to alert the appropriate people to students in possible distress. Some universities use software flagging systems. NYU has had a 24-7 hotline since 2004. But the point is to remove impediments 
to relaying the information quickly and efficiently so that faculty have an avenue to get the right people involved and not feel like it's additionally burdensome to get people to assist them with these issues. Yeah, definitely. Those are all great strategies. I know that you sent a note to faculty this academic year. Could you uh, explain a little bit about how that came about and what you were hoping to convey and the response that you got? Sure. Yeah, we, we repeatedly heard from students how central their coursework and their faculty were to their university experience, even before COVID, but especially over the last 12 months. And we also knew what Sarah's data is reflecting, that faculty want more information on how to promote well-being in their classrooms. And we knew that faculty were not, for the most part, experts in mental health. And so, you know, we really thought that now would be the time to communicate to all faculty, offering some suggestions on how they can be helpful in supporting their students who are struggling with mental health concerns. And the tips that we gave them, you know, were some might say obvious, others might have learned something verbally acknowledging, for example, the challenges of the current time was really welcoming students' thoughts and feelings on the subject. That went a really long way. Considering deadlines and time zones and emphasizing that sleep is important to students' mental health. We suggested what many others have suggested, which is to include a syllabus statement on mental health, to facilitate student-to-student interactions, again, with the consideration that a lot of students are not having a lot of social interaction with their peers, and how can faculty facilitate some of that before class, after class, provide options for class participation for different types of learners. Even way before COVID, we had feedback from students that raising their hands was not a comfortable position for them and could We allow for other ways to interact in the classroom, including, you know, reaction papers and using the chat and uh, other ways that people can participate in class, but not necessarily verbally. And then, you know, of course, knowing how to respond to a student in distress, including including knowing the uh, services available for the students. And we had many faculty respond thanking us for the letter, but more specifically, they thanked us for the concrete suggestions. I even had a couple who responded with how they were planning to use the tips to make an impact in their classrooms. And that was really, really great to see. Yeah, that's a wonderful reaction from the faculty. And it really lines up with these results that we're seeing today, which is that faculty are happy to have a role and they just want resources and information on on how to do that. So I want to touch on a concerning finding in the results about institutional climate. And that is the result that indicates that a bit more than half of faculty view their institutions to be welcoming to students of color. And large numbers of Hispanic and Black or African American faculty believe that their institutions are hostile or somewhat hostile towards students of color. So Zoe, what are the implications of that to student mental health? And what should institutions that care about student mental health do with that information? Yeah, I mean, so this is a really big topic. I mean, I guess I'll start by saying that faculty is not a monolithic term, right? Faculty are a bunch of different people with their own lived experiences and their own perceptions of the world who happen to do a similar job. And how they perceive campus culture will influence whether and how they refer their students for mental health support. And the fact that large numbers of faculty do not see their campus environments as welcoming to students of color, to international students, to students with different 
sexual orientations. This is a major concern, and it can be a barrier to supporting students if the faculty don't have this kind of trust in their institutions. The subjects of belonging and inclusion and diversity on college campuses and student mental health are all really the same conversation as far as I'm concerned. And diversity offices and student health centers and campus life units and public safety, they're all part of the same ecosystem, and they all affect each other and ultimately a student's health and safety, as well as their, you know, overall experience on their campus. And so all of this is to say that we can't compartmentalize these conversations and that we all really need to be talking to each other to center the student and to understand how every aspect of one campus experience affects their health and safety. So getting campus partners to work together on this issue is definitely big. So this is a diverse group of data points. Sarah, with all of this new, exciting information, what is next? What would you like to see happen in terms of on-campus policies and practices? And is there more information on this topic that you should be, you, you think should be explored a little further? Yeah, I want to kind of piggyback on a couple of things that Zoe just said, which essentially, I mean, we need to be thinking about student mental health as well as, you know, faculty mental health as really a, a campus-wide responsibility. So when you had framed the question of kind of what can counseling centers do and, and, and Zoe kind of rephrased it as, you know, it can't just fall to counseling centers to be supporting the well-being of entire campus communities. I, I think that these data really underscore that that, that is the case. We, we do need cross-campus collaborations and we need to think about the appropriate ways that different stakeholders on campus can be supporting student well-being. So in terms of what I would like to see happen with these data, of course, you know, as a researcher, I, I provide a lot of kind of caveats. These are pilot data. I believe this is the largest source of data that we have, though, on these topics. So we're going to continue to collect these data, which I can talk about a little bit more. This is absolutely an ongoing conversation. But I think that the responses to our pilot survey make it clear that faculty do feel a responsibility to help students who are struggling with their mental health. And again, that stands in contrast to this long-held belief that faculty don't really see this as their job. And the findings indicate that schools can do a better job in supporting faculty as they try to step into this role. When it comes to designing trainings for faculty, we asked faculty there about their preferences. We said, you know, what would encourage you to participate in a mental health training? And they most commonly cited that they would like to have trainings that are online and trainings that offer advice for general support for student mental health as opposed to just crisis training or suicide prevention. Myself as a faculty member, that makes so much sense to me. I think I, I, you know, I talk to students commonly who are in distress and I need more so kind of the skills and knowledge to think about that. And and much more rarely am I faced with a, a moment to intervene in potential suicide risk. Beyond trainings, faculty commonly cite many of the things that Zoe just mentioned. They want a list of the mental health resources that are available at their institution. They want a checklist of things to consider in terms of warning signs of mental and emotional distress, a small reference guide for how to initiate a conversation with a student about their mental health. And I think it's particularly important that that be designed from the perspective of a faculty member who, you know, the vast majority of us are not trained mental health professionals. So what is the appropriate way to have that conversation? And there's also, of course, 
power dynamics at play between students and faculty members. So having a, a small reference guide for how to initiate that conversation. And then Zoe mentioned a syllabus statement. So you know we can say that we want faculty to put syllabus statements around mental health and the resources available on campus, but we actually should be giving those statements to faculty and then saying, you know, you can adapt this and, you know, put in, you know, your own words, but here's, you know, template language that you can put in your syllabus. So, so faculty say that they want that. A couple other things that kind of stood out to me that I think have implications for moving forward in this work. So only 30% of faculty say that they know what mental health services are available for themselves at their institutions. So there seems to be kind of a lack of knowledge about the resources that are there to actually support faculty. About half of faculty say that they think their institution should be investing more in supporting faculty mental health and well-being. And to Zoe's point of, you know, we need to think about how we acknowledge the time that faculty are spending supporting students. This needs to be kind of acknowledged, rewarded. We've talked certainly about the many competing demands that faculty are facing, you know, in, in their jobs in between research and teaching and advising and service. And then trying to support student well-being is, is on top of that. And also, you know, many folks are working from home and raising families and dealing with many other challenges. So it's, I, I don't want to be naive and say, you know, faculty want all this new training and they want to take on this, you know, enormous new role. We need to think about kind of what's realistic. How can we have resources that are as accessible as possible to faculty so that they can most efficiently support students? Some hopes in terms of moving forward. I hope that it, more institutions are going to prioritize collecting this type of data faculty's own well-being is is something that institutions should care about. So we're going to need these data as we move out of the pandemic. We're going to need these data moving forward. I would love for us to have more nationally representative data from faculty across an even more diverse set of institutions. We did our best to have a diversity of institutions at the 12 schools in our study, but we need, you know, more faculty from community colleges, HBCUs, tribal colleges. I'm also really interested in the experiences of ad adjunct professors and lecturers, many of whom don't have health insurance. And we think about, you know, just the enormous stressors that those faculty members face and the fact that that at many schools, those faculty members are taking on a large proportion of, of teaching responsibilities as well. We need more data from staff as well, so not just faculty. And so thinking about kind of all of this put together, our Healthy Minds team has decided to, in fall of 2021, launch a revised version of the survey we piloted this semester and have that be a, a survey of faculty as well as staff on campus and with the same, roughly those four sections of the survey that I mentioned earlier, but I think with a, a greater emphasis on faculty and staff and their own well-being. So we're really looking forward to launching that that national survey this fall. Yeah, thanks so much, Sarah. I think that will definitely have a great impact and we'll definitely get some good findings from that survey as well, especially since what we're seeing in this survey is that faculty do feel that they need more support. Zoe, I'd like to just check in and see if you have anything else to add to all of this conversation. We have long known that faculty play such an integral role 
in uh, students' confidence and self-esteem and their overall mental health. And so bringing them into the conversation and understanding their needs is so important. And I just really wanted to highlight Sarah's comments around adjuncts. A lot of the replies that I received to the communication here at NYU was from adjuncts thanking us for including them and for the concrete suggestions that we offered. And a lot of the training requests that I got was from the adjuncts. So it was my pleasure to deliver those trainings to a group that often might not be included in these kinds of communications. And, you know, again, emphasizing how important it is to give them, like Sarah said, write the statement that you want them to include on the syllabus and make it as easy as possible to partner with the faculty in these important issues is is so, so critical. Thanks so much. So this episode will be airing on April 7th. The next day on the 8th, we're holding a webinar where we will dive further into these results and a panel of campus stakeholders will discuss implications for campus programs, practices, policies, including the development of some of these approaches to optimize the role that faculty can play in student mental health. We will include a registration link to that webinar in the description of this episode and we hope all of our listeners will join us. I'm sure it's going to be a really captivating discussion. Sarah and Zoe, Thank you so much for joining me today and sharing such interesting and valuable information. Thank you so much for having us, Dana. And I just wanted to also really quickly thank the Hazel and Betty Ford Foundation for funding this study. We knew for so long we needed data of this sort, and it's just wonderful that an organization was willing to fund the study. And then also two of my colleagues who played leading roles in the study, Nina Caesar, who's at the BU School of Public Health with me and led much of our data collection and reporting and Amber Talaski from our Healthy Minds team who has recruited the colleges and universities and and done a lot of that kind of outward facing work with the campuses. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. They are such integral roles on the team. And thanks to you, Dana, and certainly to Sarah. And we look forward to further conversations. Definitely. Thank you both so much. Thank you both. This has been The Quadcast, a program of the Mary Christie Foundation. To learn more about our work, go to marychristiefoundation.org, where you can sign up for our other programs, the MC Feed and the Mary Christie Quarterly. And if you like what we're doing, leave us a rating or review in your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening. 